Good morning, Bridgeway. Good to see everyone. Um, you're going to need your Bible and also the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door. We are not going to have the scriptures on the screens because we are only going to be in the book of John today. So we're going to be able to follow along uh, line by line as we go through some of his recording of what Jesus did and said. We are in part 41 of our Being Jesus series and I entitled today's message, Radical Reality. And I just want to make uh, one statement before I give you the fill in the blank, and it's this. The nature of revolution is total overhaul. It is not a slight remodel. And what I mean by that is as long as you engage with Jesus by saying, you know what, I'm pretty good. If you could just help me out and get me the last bit there, that would be great. Uh, God, I have mostly what I need, but Jesus, if you can give me some extra stuff, that would be fantastic. As long as you treat God in that fashion, you're going to be highly disappointed because what he is looking for is absolute and total revolution. He is talking about new thoughts, new ideas, new agenda, new priorities. He is here to dig out uh, the part of you that is resistant to him. Therefore, there's going to be a tension and uh, a frustration and a little bit of resistance, right? Or maybe a lot of it of resistance in each and every one of us. And he will continue to press through. Therefore, the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. We cannot follow Jesus and our agenda. We cannot follow Jesus and our agenda. What we're going to find is that in our story this morning, Jesus is about to thin the herd. There's a ton of people that want to hang out with Jesus. There's a lot of people that want stuff from him. They like the intention. They like the whole uh, fanfare that's around him. They think he's exciting and he's, you know, it's kind of crazy. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, they think, and maybe there's even more benefit to come. And Jesus is about to say a few phrases that are going to cause the majority to walk away and never follow him again. What is he possibly going to say? What is so offensive to them? And would he ever say anything like that to us? Well, that's what we're going to find out. Would you turn with me to John chapter 6, verse 22, page 891. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. It's page 891. That should get you there a little bit faster. John chapter 6, verse 22. Let me recap what we talked about last week. Last time we were together, we talked about the idea that Jesus took five little tiny baby loaves of bread and two little sardine-sized fish and multiplied them out and fed anywhere from 6,000 to 20,000 people. The disciples each took home a private bag of leftovers that was more than what they started with. And yet the most shocking line of that entire story was they missed the miracle. They didn't see it as a miracle. They, they lost that. They didn't get it. And so they're still troubled about the whole idea of the bread thing. Jesus is going to bring up the bread thing again. Um, the other thing that we talked about was that Jesus walked on water, but he wasn't the only one that walked on water. Peter walked on water for a short amount of time. So having said all of that, knowing all those stories happened around the Sea of Galilee, we are still in that location. Jesus had originally taken his disciples from their home base side to a desolate place 
where they were supposed to get rest, but everyone came over and wrecked that quiet time. Jesus sent his disciples away at night, stayed, dismissed the crowd who wanted to make him king. And Jesus went up on a mountain quiet. In the middle of the night, he comes walking across the lake to the other side and gets the disciples back to their home base area. Well, everyone is going to assume Jesus is where they left him. You never want to assume that Jesus is where you left him. He's not exactly on your nightstand. He is active and moving and doing things. So they're going to look for him in the morning. And that's where we pick up our story. It begins like this. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, that desolate side, that Gentile side, the eating bread side, saw that there had only been one boat there for Jesus and his crew. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. They saw him dismiss the disciples. They know he didn't get in that boat. So where was he? Now, other boats from the other side, from Tiberias, several miles to the south, they came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went back to where Jesus' disciples were to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, when did you come here? In other words, how dare you go where I cannot track you, right? How dare you not use the iPhone app to where I can make sure to know exactly where you're at at all times? Why would you do that? Maybe you did something and I missed out on it. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, we all know that is a phrase that I do not care for. Uh, it is a double amen. It's powerful. It's awesome. But we don't talk like that. And so we'll tend to go right past it. So we've changed it in this church. Uh, I changed it from truly, truly, I say to you to listen up. This is deep. Okay. So every time he's going to say it, he's going to say it about five times in this one message. I'm going to say, listen up. This is deep because what it means is we got to stop everything else because I have to tell you something very powerful and we have to pause our conversation and really focus on what I'm about to say next. All right. So I'm going to use that phrase. So he says, listen up. This is deep. You're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. What does that mean? It means simply this. Hold up. Before we move any further forward, let me be very clear on why you all are following me. You're not following me because you're looking for a sign to the Messiah or eternal life. You're following me because you get stuff. That's why you're following me. Let's, let's all be honest about this. You dig my bread, right? That's what he's saying. Is he saying you like what I can give you? And so therefore you're following. I want to clearly tell you, I see your motives and I'm calling it out on purpose. So I need you to own the fact that you're not walking after me for the right reasons. He said, you're not looking for signs, signs. And I need to be very clear on this. We've talked a lot in this church about signs and wonders recently. As a matter of fact, we've had all kinds of teachings on signs and wonders. I need you to understand that phrase signs always means it points to something else. It's not the thing. It's what the thing is talking about. In other words, if Jesus does a sign and wonder, it's for you to say, this sign is pointing to the fact that he is special. 
that he is glorious, that he is magnificent. So if your eyes do not transfer from the thingamajig to the giver of the thingamajig, we missed it. Make sense? Then it's not really a sign because sign didn't work because it wasn't pointing to anything. So he said, you're not looking deeper into anything. You just want my stuff. Now, what was his stuff? I already told you, multiplied barley loaves. That's not usually a big deal. But here's what's interesting, to me at least. Do you think his bread tastes better than everybody else's? And here's, here's why I would ask you that. What was the wine like that he made in Cana? You remember that? Where you kind of go, remember the story? And I know it'll mess with a bunch of people's theology real quick here, but do you remember, <laughs> do you remember the story where the guy tastes it and he's like, what in the world are you doing? You know that you always bring out the good stuff at the beginning so that once everyone's hammered, we can use the cheap stuff. Do you remember that? Okay. Anyway, Jesus made some pretty legit wine. So if that's the case, I wonder what his bread tastes like. Now, was everybody going, man, that's some good bread. You know what I mean? It was, I haven't had bread like that since I was a little kid. That's some good bread. I have no idea, but everybody was into the bread thing. They thought it was cool. They thought it was so impressive they were going to make him king. So they knew that it was a miracle. So that's what seems so odd about where this goes. He says this in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes. Don't work for stuff that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man, that's Jesus's favorite term for himself, will give to you. In other words, you got to work for something that I can give to you for, and the reason why I can do all this on me, on him, on the son of man, God, the father has set his seal. All right. What is he talking about? First of all, he says, I want you to work for that, which really matters. I don't want you to work for stuff that's just going to go away. And so let me, let me talk with you at Bridgeway very honestly. Uh, it doesn't matter how old you are per se, but can we all accept the reality that it's not wise to kill ourselves for, kill ourselves for stuff we can't take with us? At some point, can we mature to that place where when you die, Everyone's bank account goes to zero and then you get what God gives you. Are we all clear on that? Do we understand that when you die, it doesn't matter how popular you are here, that when you die, it doesn't matter whether or not you think you have power, you suddenly enter into a whole nother dimension with different rules. So if you are part of the rat race and we all are, Are we literally killing ourselves and stressing ourselves and freaking out over things that don't matter? That's a problem. And at some point we have to own that that's silly and stop doing that. So that's all Jesus was saying is he's saying, listen, if you can't take it with you, if it doesn't secure, if it doesn't have anything to do with your next life, what exactly are you working so hard for it if it's temporary? What I would rather have you do is work towards the things that matter long term. Does that make sense? It's pretty basic. And you kind of go, yeah, 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 I get that. All right. Well, let's go to something else that's interesting. He said, the reason why I can talk to you like this and I can offer what I'm about to offer is because the father who the Jews all knew, the father, the father of the nation of Israel, God He's now dropping names going, the reason is, is because God has put his seal on me. 
Now, maybe you're not familiar with the concept of an ancient seal. If you've been in the church, you've probably heard this a thousand times. So let me bring us up to speed. In the ancient world, there was no point in really doing signatures. Kind of like, oh, the king signed this because signatures can be forged. So he would have a signet ring or some type of image or emblem that would stand for him on his ring. And then when you wanted to seal a package, whether that was a will or a letter or whether or not it was just goods and that you were going to ship across, you would put something on it that's malleable. So you would pour either wax or liquid uh, uh, soft metals or you would put uh, clay and then you would take your signet ring that no one else had. Because if they had it, they would have to cut your hand off to get it. And then you press that in, and now your image, your mark, is on that seal that says, if anyone ever messes with it, they're messing with you. Make sense? Jesus said, my father has pressed his image into me. Therefore, I can do special things. Now, the reason why this matters to us is because the Bible says that God created us in his image. That indeed his very mark has been stamped upon our soul. Though it is marred by sin, though it was screwed up by the fall, make no mistake, the image of God is on you. It's on all mankind, and that's why there is redeeming going on. Because God's stuff is not garbage and his image is on you. If you remember when Jesus was asked about taxes, they said, so should we pay taxes or not? And he said, give me a coin. They throw him over a coin. He said, whose face is on this? Whose image is on this coin? They said, well, that's Caesar. And he said, all right, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. If Caesar's image is on a coin, give him cash. If God's image is on your heart, give him your heart. You understand what I'm saying? That was the big deep message there. Well, in the same way, he said, I am the exact image and representation of the father. If you ever want to know what the father looks like, you can look at me because I am the spitting image, the very icon, the very picture of the father. And I stand here before you now. So if you need to know why I can do what I can do, he said, it's because I and the father are one. That's what he was trying to tell everybody. So he moves on. He said this. Then these followers, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them. Oh, you want to talk about works? Okay. Well, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Here's what they were asking. What can we do to improve our spiritual grade? That was what they're asking. What good stuff can we do? What righteousness can we do? What things may we possibly do to where now God really thinks we're impressive? What can we do to where now he's forced to let us go into heaven and have special stuff? I mean, what kind of righteous acts could we possibly do to make ourselves better? You know, God, why don't you tell us what we can do? And he said, what you can do. Hmm. All right. I got one for you. Here's what you can do. You can believe me. They're like, what? That's lame. I mean, give us stuff to do. I mean, what kind of righteous acts can we do? Here's the point. The Old Testament is very clear that any righteousness we try to do in and of ourselves, the Bible says is like used menstrual rags. That's pretty graphic. How does God feel about it? Hmm, I don't know. He's like, yeah, as far as you're all, I'm righteous. Yeah, that doesn't work. 
Okay, because here's the deal. The standard is absolute, pure perfection. Anything less than that, we are not grading on a, on, on a, you know what, a scale. We're not doing an A, B, C, D, or F. We're doing a pass or fail. Anything that is not exactly perfect in every way is a fail. It doesn't even count. So this whole garbage about, oh, are you a good person? No, you're not. And this whole thing about, oh, I'm going to earn my way to heaven, it's all ridiculousness. It's not even close. It's a quantum leap from one another. No, you're not going to do anything good to earn your way into heaven. All the religions of the world are, how do I do good stuff to get to the good place? And he's going, it's a fail. It's not going to work. And they're like, so what do we do? And he's like, well, let me be me. Trust me in this. Believe me. It's the only thing you can do. If I serve up something to you, you can receive it. That's all you can do. You can't prep it. You can't figure it out ahead of time. You're not going to add to it. You can say, thank you. That's good. That's your work. Whenever it says faith, in the Bible, it means trust. Whenever it says belief, it means trust. It means not knowing info. It means living as if that info is reality. We've shared this before, but if you had received a word that through all the ventilation was being pumped poisonous gas... And you said, no, 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 I, I, I received that. And you still sit here? Something is wrong with you. You don't really trust that that's legit or you would get up and leave. Until you own the information and react off the information, it's not real information to you. It's just an opinion. Well, God is saying, listen, if you're going to talk about believing in me, you don't go, yeah, 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 that is possible. No, 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 is reality. Jesus Christ is real. He really came. He really died. He really rose again. And he's really the only way to heaven. Until you operate off that as fact, it is not yet real information to you. Make sense? That's what he's talking about. So he moves on. He said this, verse 30. So they said to him, all right, all right, all right. So you're up in the ante here, right? Okay, so what sign do you do that we can see and believe you? What work are you going to perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written in Psalm 78, 23 through 24, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, this is kind of weird. He just multiplied and did a radical miracle yesterday. They're like, so uh, what are you going to do? He's like, what am I? What are you going to do? Man, I'm doing all the miracles over here, right? What was the point? They're saying, listen, as long as you're distributing bread guy, it doesn't take a lot of work on our side. I mean, we're just going to get bread from you, so we'll give you a little bit of our attention. Now you're playing this game that you're the Messiah. If you're the Messiah, that means we have to, what? Submit to you. If you're going to ask us to give our entire life and surrender to you, we need some more proof because that's not good enough. Hmm. There was a Jewish belief, a rabbinic tradition, that when the Messiah came, in order to demonstrate he was the greater Moses, he would bring manna back. And they're like, all right, you're a Messiah guy. 
If our rabbis are right, how about you show us some type of bread from heaven? How about you do that? Because you gave us bread for a day. Moses gave us bread for 40 years. That was magical, supernatural bread every day. So you better do something else. Jesus said to them, listen up, this is deep. First of all, y'all don't know how to read the Bible. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my dad who gives you the real, true, genuine, original bread from heaven. For the bread of God is a he, not an it. You kept saying that it was bread from heaven, that it was a thing? No, 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 no. It's a he. It's a person. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, well, sir, give us this bread always. Now, this is all supposed to link us back to the woman at the well story. The woman at the well story where she's like, you know, hey, uh, can I give you a drink? And he's like, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. She's like, you don't even have anything to draw from the well with. He said, honestly, I have living water. I have running water that you would never thirst again. She's like, well, then bring it, man, because I'm tired of coming out here every day and drawing water. I'd love running water. That would be great. In the same way, he just said, you need food that is always consistently coming to you so you don't have to go seek it. And they're like, yeah, that would be awesome. How about you provide us some of that? They're missing it. Jesus is saying that he is offering a better bread than Moses. In what way is that true? Because Moses, honestly, through God, God provided something pretty neat through Moses, which was... Uh, look at it this way. It sustained life. They're literally in the desert and they have nothing to eat. They're all going to die if they don't have something to eat. In the morning, there's this little crumbly stuff all over the ground. They scoop it up and they can smash it together and make bread like items. If you get supernatural magical type bread on the ground every morning, that's pretty awesome. It sustained their life. Jesus said, I appreciate the sustaining I will actually give you God-type life. I will change the quality of life. In the Old Testament, the manna lasted 40 years. Jesus said, this is eternal. That's bigger. In the Old Testament, it was for a large nation of Israel, but Jesus offers it for the entire world. In the Old Testament, manna was a gift. Jesus was offering a personal sacrifice from God. Are we all tracking on? There's a big difference here. He is the greater Moses. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am right there. We all know what I am means personal name of God, Yahweh. I am that I am. Jesus will drop in the book of John recorded and John did this on purpose. He recorded seven. I am statements. Seven is a number of perfection. That's the point. This is the first of seven. He'll say stuff like I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the door. I'm, you know, he'll, I'm the good shepherd. He'll say a bunch of these things. This is his first one. I am, that's, I'm God, and therefore I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you've seen me, you've seen the evidence, and yet you still don't believe. What's he saying? I'm from heaven. I'm God, incarnate, and you're not impressed So what exactly are you waiting for? I'm everything you could possibly imagine and more. And yet you're unmoved 
I don't quite know what to do with you on this. Now, I thought about this for a while, and as growing up, this was a little bit of a challenge for me, this whole idea of not hungering and thirsting. Because I thought, you know what, as a Christian, I still hunger and thirst a lot. I still have all this lack in my life. I'm kind of like, well, I also, I desire this, and I want this, and I don't feel like this is working out well. And I feel like there's a lot of um, not having enough. So in what way does God really quench our hunger and thirst? And it kind of bugged me. And then I realized where my mistake was. Here's my mistake. I grew up with an atmosphere of God. Every thought I've ever had is that God is real and he's for me. Every thought that I've had since a childhood was around Christian people. I was trained in scripture in school. I was around it. My mom was my spiritual role model. I was in it every day. Every moment, every waking thought was that I could pray and someone heard me and I was never alone. Here's my mistake. I assume everybody feels like that. Whoops, they don't. As a matter of fact, there are some here listening to my voice right now and you don't feel like that. And I don't even know what to do with that. It's so foreign to me. I breathe in God air from my first memory. And yet you do not. You literally believe that you're alone. You believe that there is a creator, perhaps, maybe not, but he certainly has nothing to do with you. You feel disconnected and you feel very, very alone. What Jesus is telling you is he's not okay with that. What he's telling you is he is near, you are not forgotten, that you are indeed loved and that he has died that you might be with him forever. That's actually what he's telling you. And there's a reason why you're listening to this message right now. Because God is inviting you and drawing you in to having real life. And so when you hear these words, understand these words are for you. He wrote it for you. And this is what he says. All that the father gives me, all the presents my dad gives me, which are actually people. All of you who would say, yes, Jesus, rescue me. All of those I consider presents from my dad. And all that the father gives me, you will all come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never get rid of. My love won't let me get rid of you. My love won't let me forget about you. My love won't allow me to abandon you. But even more than that, it's what my dad wants. And I always fulfill what my dad wants. Never once will I let one thing that he wants not happen. As a matter of fact, we're so convinced of that is that when you become one of my children, he said, we will come and dwell in you so that you will always be with us and come home with us. Jesus said, I go away to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, I would, I would have told you, but I go away to prepare that place so I can come back and have you come be with me where I am. In other words, God is so obsessed with close connection with us is that he will go to extreme lengths so that you are secure knowing he'll get you home. He says, verse 38, for I have come down from heaven. Now he'll say that seven times in this one sermon. His whole point is I'm not from here. I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And you want to know what that is? Here's the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but I will resurrect it on the last day. No man, woman, child left behind that is mine. That's not going to happen. If you're mine, you're mine. For this is the will of my father, verse 40, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. That is your responsibility. To look on the son, to believe what he said. That's the only thing you got in this plan. Like I said, you didn't prep anything. You can't do any righteousness. You can't fix anything. All you can do is say, thank you, Lord. Yes. That's what you do. That's your part. Because God chooses to operate and make his gift effective upon reception. So when you say, yes, Lord, boom, it goes into effect. That's what he's telling you. And he's saying, right now, I'm knocking on the door to your heart. Are you or are you not going to let me in? If you let me in, then I can come dwell with you. And all, everything that I prepared for you, everything I did on the cross, that all becomes real for you. Will you look at me? Will you receive me? Will you open your heart to me? Will you give me your life? Will you cave to your own attempts? Will you say you're sorry for what you've done? Will you walk with me? Will you talk with me? Will you open up to me? This is what God is looking for. Verse 41. Amen. I love that. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. Well, of course, because he said, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, wait, 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 wait. We know this guy. He lives on 44 Elm Street. I grew up with that guy. Man, I went to high school with that dude. He said, They grumbled because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How in the world does he say, I came down from heaven? No, you didn't. You came down the street. (laughs) You know, we struggle with what's super weird and we struggle with what's super familiar. Man, it seems like God can't win, right? Hmm. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. That didn't go well for the Jews in the wilderness. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. Interesting words in Greek. No one can come. That word is dynamai in Greek. It means you don't even have the power to come. There's nothing you can do. Sorry, kid. You do not have the ability to come to me unless the father draws you. And that word draw implies resistance. What's the point? The same word is used when dragging something heavy ashore. Why are you dragging it? Because it's heavy. It's resisting you. This is what he's saying. There is no way you getting saved was your idea. As a matter of fact, you were hyper resistant to me. I did so much underground laying the foundation to where suddenly you started to have these ideas. Hey, maybe this life isn't everything. Hey, maybe I should think about God. Hey, maybe God is real. You think those were your ideas? No, they were not. I did all that. I dug in all the way down deep to the very core of you. And my father is drawing you despite your resistance, leading you all the way up to this point. Why? Because we do it all. I would like to know if you want to say yes to this is what God is saying. 
It is written in the prophets. Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 31, stuff like that. And they will all be taught by God. What does that mean? Well, it seems to me in this context that at some point in the future, God was going to go internal and start working from the inside out on people. Did you ever have thoughts in your mind that now that you look back, probably weren't your own? Yeah, that's the drawing of the father. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me, Jesus said. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who's from God. That's me. I've seen the father. Listen up. This is deep. Whoever believes, and that phrase is continuing tense. Whoever continuously believes, not, man, that one time when I was seven and I was in Sunday school and I was like all in, and then I never thought about God again. That's not what we're talking about. Whoever lives in the reality of Jesus being the son of God who died for our sins. That's what I'm talking about. Whoever believes has right now eternal life. Not when you die right now. Why? Because once you're in connection with God, you will always be in connection with God. You actually never die. Even if you pass from this life, it's passing from glory to a greater glory. So actually you transfer, but you have eternal life. Your quality of life transforms right now. It's not later. Then you're never alone because you're always connected to the father. Make sense. And then he said, I'm the bread of life. In case you missed that verse 48, verse 49, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness. You know what? That was awesome. And they died. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's when everyone went, I'm sorry, what? Your, your flesh. I don't, I'm not sorry, I'm not following you. Then the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Ew, that's gross. I added that part. <laughs> so Jesus said to them, listen up, this is deep. Unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You're dead right now. Whoever feeds continually on my flesh, drinks my blood continuously has eternal life. And I'll raise him up in the last day for my flesh is the real, true, genuine food. My blood is the real, true, genuine drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood lives, dwells, abides in me. I live in him as the father, living father has sent me. I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he'll live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven not like the bread that the fathers the jews with moses ate and died whoever feeds on this bread will live forever and jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at capernaum was that offensive yeah pretty much in every way why because he's not just talking to us who are like ew he's talking to jews who are like no why jews have certain dietary restrictions you all familiar with those they're called kosher laws what are one of the most powerful laws according to meat? You're not allowed to eat meat with blood in it. Blood's a no-no. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, it's really intense and hardcore that the blood belongs to God. Why? Because the blood represents life. If blood drains out of any given human or animal body, 
it dies, right? In other words, so life was represented in the blood. So you're not allowed to eat that at all. God is the giver of life. Therefore, he owns life. You're not allowed to take any of that stuff. They know these laws backward and forward and they live according to them. Jesus just violated everything. Yeah, hey, real quick, unless you all are cannibals and you start eating my flesh and you drink my blood, you're never going to be saved. Why would he use such inflammatory language? And it's going to rock everyone's world. This is why the majority will walk away from him. What is he talking about? Why would he even do that? Because here's really what he's saying. Does this offend you? You don't, you're not even listening to what I'm saying. You're offended because I'm offending your religion. I'm messing with how you think things are. You think you got God cornered. You think you got it all sorted out. You think that now you know how it works and why my dad told you not to eat the blood and everything else. And you're so locked in your paradigm that anything I say that would even sound remotely like I'm violating your belief system, you will reject and walk away and feel good about it. So you know what? I'm rejecting it on purpose. There you go. I'm going to mess with your world. And if you don't love me and you're not interested enough to get closer to me to figure out what I really meant, bye-bye. I don't need to be with you right now at all. You are not ready. You are not drawn by my father. You have no idea what I'm talking about and you don't care enough. So see ya. Wow, that's pretty intense. Would Jesus really do that? Yep. Has he ever done that to you? He will. What's he going to do? Offend everything about you and about how you grew up and about what you believe and about how the categories you think you got him nailed down in. You've already figured this all out, right? Have you now? He will offend everything in your senses and go, how about now? You're going to get close enough to what to, I mean, you think you got it. No, you don't. You're not even looking at the details. You're not even asking me what it means. You're not even seeking me. You will walk away from me because it doesn't sound right. You trust your wisdom that you're that smart, do you? Hmm. The whole idea we really have to wrestle with, what does he mean by eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Okay, now we all do communion, right? Which is super funny because that's exactly what it ends up talking about. That's not what it's talking about here. As a matter of fact, communion hasn't even been instituted as a sacrament yet. But it's the same concept, we literally take little bits of bread and say that's Jesus' body and then we go and we eat it. Isn't that weird? I just ate a little bit of cannibal stuff, right? I mean, is that... And then you take this little juice in the world's smallest cup that's not even wine because we're too wimpy to do that. And we drink that and we say that's his blood. That's weird. So what are we really doing? Perhaps the most clarifying commentary I read on this was from William Barclay, and he said this, and it was fascinating. And after he said it, I was like, ah, oh, how did I not think of that? Because Paul refers to it all the time when he talks about meat sacrificed to idols. Here's what it is. In the pagan religions of this time, the way that they would worship their gods and goddesses around them is that they would take a living sacrifice to the temple where just like the Jews would, they would kill the animal. Only a portion was burned up to the God. The rest of the animal was then given back to the family after a portion was given to the priest for his own use. 
the rest of it was given to the family who was supposed to go and have a meal, a feast in the temple in honor of the God or goddess. It was believed that not only did the God sit around the table with them, but the God entered into the sacrificial meat so that when they ate it and ingested it, it went down into their bodies. We all know that what we eat becomes a part of us. Then you ingest the God or goddess. It becomes a part of you and you walk out in the power of that God. Does that sound familiar? Is that at all a counterfeit of what God does with us? Is that not what Jesus does? Here's how we actually eat his flesh and drink his blood. He said, until you receive deep within you what I've done and who I am, until you let that become part of the fabric of your being, you're not with me. But if you indeed do that, I dwell within you and you march out in my power. You are with me. We are one. We fuse together because all of my thoughts, all of my actions, all of my deeds and my miracles and my sacrifice all becomes real for you. And you drink it all in. You eat it all in. And it so becomes a part of you that it's as if I'm there with you and I'm in you and we're dwelling fused as one and you walk out in my confidence and authority. Does that make sense? That's what he means. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. You think? Even if they did get it, it's hard to accept it. And so they wanted to reject it. Who can listen to it, they said. Who can handle this? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, what does this scandalize you? What is this offensive to you? Hmm. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What, you're really offended by this? Then how exactly are you going to handle when I'm hanging on a cross? Because in your Old Testament, you, are, you know the verse that says any man that hangs on a tree is cursed. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to hang on a tree. Why? Just to mess with you. I'm going to hang on that tree and until you figure out why my father said that and until you get close enough to understand that I was cursed so you might live until you put all that together, you're just going to walk away from me and say he must not be the Messiah because he didn't do it right. How about I did it completely right and you have no idea what you're talking about. It is the Holy Spirit, verse 63, who gives life. The flesh, yeah, that's no help at all in terms of righteousness. You're not going to do anything. I got to do all that. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and it was, and who it was who would betray him. How did he know that? Was he omniscient? Yeah, but he set that aside. How did he know that? Because his dad told him so. He said, verse 65, This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They said, I'm out. No more of this Christianity stuff. Okay, we're done. It's weird. It's hard. I don't get it. You know what? I'm going to go back to what's familiar. I don't need to put in all this effort. I'm cool where I'm at. I'm good. Are you? So Jesus said to the 12, his apostles, you guys want to go away as well? Well, hey, while we're thinning the herd, are you out? 
I mean, let's talk about it right now. You want to stick with me or not? Because I'm not going to sit there and try to convince you of something that you refuse to believe. If your heart is hard, your heart is hard. I'm not going to sit there and play games with you. Do you want to walk away? Simon Peter, the loudmouth and spokesman of the group, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? That's your underline right there. Because that's why you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, where else are you going to go? Well, I don't know. Jesus didn't really do the things the way I liked it. So where else are you going to go? What other savior ever showed up for you? None. It says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed, meaning by your words and deeds, we soak that up. We believe we have come to know by personal experience that you are the Holy one of God. You're the Messiah. And Jesus said, really, is that how you all feel? All right. Did I not choose you the 12 yet? One of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot for he, one of the 12 was going to betray him. Really? Y'all agree with this, huh? Simon, you're talking for the whole team, are you? No, I don't think so. Well, you think that you're just following me around for three years means you're legit? No, no, you're not. Because there are some in our midst that aren't with us at all. And I just got to be honest with that because I know who you are, God said. So sure enough, what do we do with this? Here's what I want to do with this. Although I was, I guess I was, I was hearing something. Sorry. It was, it was up front. I almost thought I heard my voice. That was weird. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Derailed. Squirrel. <laughs> my fault. <laughs> Here's what I want to do. What I want to do is I want to pray for those of you right now that really feel like God is all over you. You know full well why you're here, because God drew you here. You know now's the time, because God said it's the time. It wasn't your idea, it's his idea. And as a matter of fact, you feel like what I described. You literally do not believe that God is for you. You literally do not believe that you are connected to him, and that when you cry out, he is waiting on you. You really believe that you're alone. That's who I want to pray for. Whoever that is, I'm going to begin to pray. And when I pray for this and you know that that's you, here's what I want you to do. Everyone's going to have their eyes closed. It doesn't even matter. It's not about anybody else. It's about you and God. I'm going to have you throw your hand up in the air and say, God, that's me. I own that because you're talking to me and I want everything that Pastor Lance is praying right now to be true for me. I own it in my heart. I'm saying it right along with that guy. I don't have the words, but he's thrown out some words. I agree with them. This is me. This is my life. Y'all ready to pray with us? All right, let's do this. Everyone bow your heads, close your eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly father right now, save us right here. We put our hand in the air as a testimony. God rescue me. We need salvation. We need to be freed. We don't need to be alone anymore. We don't need to be uh, a feeling abandoned. We don't need to feel disconnected. And so God, would you move 
on us. Would you come and rescue us from this incredible loneliness, this pit, this despair, this feeling like we don't matter. And so God, would you come down? We own what we've done with our life. We know it's in shambles. We know we don't want to own it anymore. We don't want to live it anymore. We don't want to to try to rule it anymore. We give our lives to you afresh. We give our lives to you right now, asking for your forgiveness, asking for your grace, asking for your mercy to fall down upon us, to set us free from the sin in our lives, to set us free from the baggage of the past, to set us free from all that wars within our soul. God, we want to be connected to you, Father. And the only way to do that is that you sent your son and we willingly accept and believe that it is legitimate and that it is true for us. God, would you heal us? Would you restore us? Would you fix our relationship to you? Lord, we need you so badly. We cannot do it without you. Forgive us, God. Forgive us for who we are and what we've done. Forgive us for our anger and resistance towards you and towards everybody else. Jesus, everything you did on the cross, would you let that all pour down into us that we would take it in and it would become a part of us, that we would walk forward from this day in a state of forgiveness and grace and healing and wholeness because of what you did. Holy Spirit, come and indwell us and fill our lives. Make your home within us that we might be empowered by you, that we might be secured by you, that we might know your love every moment. Rescue us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time.